Welcome to this episode of the Strip Till Farmer podcast series. I'm Michaela Pauchner, Associate Editor of Strip Till Farmer. Thanks to Source by Sound Agriculture for supporting this Strip Till podcast series. Wake up your soil and unlock more per acre with Source by Sound Agriculture. Source is a biochemistry that activates microbes in the soil to provide more nitrogen and phosphorus to corn and soybean crops. It's simple to use with a low use rate, tank mix compatibility, and flexible application window. Use the Performance Optimizer tool to determine where Source will work best to increase yield or reduce nitrogen. Either way, you win! Visit sound.ag to learn more. That's S-O-N-D dot A-G. When it comes to compaction, there are some things you can control and some things you can't. As we all know, you can't control the weather or when crops need to be planted and harvested, but you can control your loads and the PSI of your tires. Jody D. Young-Hughes, a University of Minnesota Extension educator who focuses on the physical side of soil, has been helping strip tillers fight compaction and a host of other issues for more than 20 years. She's joining Strip Till Farmer for the 2022 National Strip Tillage Conference in July to share her top tips for managing soil compaction for better strip till outcomes. In today's episode of the Strip Till Farmer podcast, Jody gives us a preview of her lecture discussing what you can do to deal with compaction in your fields, improve your soil health, make money on soil saving practices, and much more. I'm Jody Dion Hughes with the University of Minnesota Extension, and I've been here for 25 years now. And I work uh, mainly kind of on the physical sides of soil. So soil compaction, tillage management, reducing erosion, that type of thing, and all of that ties into soil health. The research that I've conducted for over 20 years working with strip till and looking at it compared to uh, moldboard plow when we're in a continuous corn situation and disc ripping. And then if it's a corn bean rotation, uh, looking at it with um, chisel plow, vertical till, uh, one-time field cultivation, we've done, we've looked at quite a few different pieces of equipment. And lately we've been looking at using strip till for sugar beets. What are some of the recent discoveries you've come across when looking at strip till and sugar beets? Uh, That it doesn't hurt yield like we think. Sugar beet is such a small seed uh, that you really need a good seed bed for it to get going. And um, this last year we had three fields that were Uh, strip tilled in the fall and then did not have a freshening pass in the spring. And I, and I was kind of worried. Uh, I saw a lot of hairpinning of residue in the seed zone and I was like, Oh, this isn't going to work well. And all of them, all three plots did the same as disc ripping and strip till was disc versus disc ripping. And I, I really think though, when somebody is first starting out in any new system, that maybe a secondary pass would just that really fast freshening of the berm would make it even better. And what would that second pass do that would, in terms of what it's doing to the soil to make it better for people who are just starting out? Well, you know, when you first starting out and starting to look at soil health, and you haven't been doing any of those practices before, and you've done a lot of tillage, your soil is going to be chunkier. And when you're trying to get a seed into that, that can be really 
not good. <laughs> you know, you can lose your seed and get uneven depth. And then even in corn, get uneven emergence, which is, is not good with corn. So with strip till, especially with a shank, if you're pulling up clods and creating a few air pockets in there and they didn't settle down and mellow out like they, they should during winter to take a, a fresh freshening pass, just a, a coulter pass quickly, just over the berm. You don't need to go over the residue. And it, what it does is just kind of breaks up those clots. Now, after a few years of being in strip till, your soil is going to be healthier. It's uh, going to respond better. It won't be so chunky and clotty. It will be a lot better aggregated and more like the coffee grounds that everybody talks about. And so then you won't need a secondary pass unless something odd happens. You know, it's maybe nice to keep that in the, the shed, that piece of equipment, but um, you should need it less and less. Mm -hmm. Do you think that doing strip till in the fall and then the freshening pass, is that a better plan of action than spring strip till? Well, that is a dilemma. I would say in Minnesota, we are a little colder than our southern states. Even as you go from southern Minnesota to northern Minnesota, we have a huge change in weather. And I like to see them get some of that done in the fall because you never know what's going to happen in the spring. And um, like this year, um, we are barely started planting and it's May 26th. And we're worried that we won't get the corn in before the deadline. So um, you never know what's going to happen. To So to spread out the work, I like it going in on the fall and then pick up what you can in the spring. Maybe on the sandier soils, wait till spring uh, just to keep them protected a little longer. And then on the clay type soils, you know, fall is better. Okay, that makes sense. So you're joining us for the 2022 National Strip Tillage Conference to give a lecture on managing soil compaction for better strip till outcomes. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of what you'll be talking about? Well, you know, reducing compaction is actually good for all tillage systems um, and no-till because, you know, in, in no-till, you have no chance of getting any of that compaction back out of there. So we'll be talking about things that we can't control, like the weather and that you got to get planted and you're out of harvest and sometimes the whole field isn't fit. But there are things you can control, and that is your axle loads and the PSI of your tires. And we'll talk a little bit about tracks versus tires. And then also uh, one of the ways to alleviate compaction is either with um, subsoiling with a, a straight shank or, and alongside that, you should be building your soil health because those little soil aggregates act like mini columns in the soil and they help hold up the weight of equipment going over. Um, and then we'll... So building soil health and looking at, like I said, the PSI and the axle loads and just kind of going from there. So there's things we can control and there's things we can't. For strip tillers specifically, what issues do they need to be thinking about when it comes to compaction? If you're moving over your rows, you know, you're going to move over into the tire track at, at some point. So it, it's important for strip tilt as well. So lighter equipment, look at the PSIs, just try to minimize the compaction that you'll be running into. And as they build, you know, residue can also help with trafficability and keeping the tractor up off the soil. So that's a benefit with strip till as well and building soil health. Mm -hmm. 
uh, talking about tracks versus tires, what are your recommendations there? Well, I think the companies have sold tracks as making no compaction, that they just float across the field. And compaction is based on the PSI, which gives the intensity of the compaction, and then axle load, which tells you how deep that's going to go into the soil. And when you're looking at a tracked tractor, it still has all the weight. Actually, it has a little bit more weight. Tracks weigh more than tires. And it's... um, so it still pushes that compaction down. The intensity is going to be based on uh, the configuration of that track. So there's little guide wheels in between, and they put down pressure points into the soil. So if you look at a track and its average PSI is, say, five, which is awesome. That's a great number. Those pressure points can put down 15 PSI. So I just don't want farmers to have a false sense of security that, you know, just because you're floating across the field does not mean you're not compacting. What is a good number to aim for for PSI? And then what is way too high? If your tire is running on the road and carrying a heavy weight, it's going to need a higher PSI so that it doesn't build up too much heat and ruin the tire and other problems with that. Um, But in the field, because you're going slower and your weight disappears as you go across the field, you can actually lower that PSI. So some of the tires, uh, especially like center field planters, are at 80 to 100 PSI, which is way too high. And when you're in the field, they can actually be down around 30. They need to look at the charts. I'm not recommending these numbers. They need to go look at the actual numbers from the companies. Um, But what a, a level that I like to see the tractors at properly inflated around 10 PSI. Um, Anything more than 10 PSI, you're starting to push that compaction, that intensity deeper into the soil where it's going to be harder to control it with uh, tillage. And then with axle loads, uh, I like to see those around 10 if you have good soil and five if you are just starting out and you have your soil health isn't very good. Um, because a healthier soil can take heavier weight. Um, And a lot of our equipment is nowhere near five ton an axle. Okay. There's a reason why we have compaction because our equipment is huge. And, oh, and we might talk a little bit too about controlled traffic. So if you do have this heavy equipment, let's just put it in certain areas of the field and not track it all over the place. Is controlled traffic always a good idea? It's not as easy to get there with all the equipment that, um, you know, I've worked with farmers where we try to figure out um, if they've had triples, you know, now you can go down to singles and you're not going to get the flotation with singles as you would with your duels or triples on. But um, you want to concentrate all that compaction into one area. Now, um, the, the problem with that is everything has to be lined up um, width wise. And so as you buy new equipment, think about that. You know, I'm not saying you you go change out your whole line right now, your combines, grain carts, tractors, sprayers. Uh, No, you know, let's do that as you go. But the main thing to control is the heaviest items out there, which is usually the grain cart. And instead of like, if you fill up on the go with the tractor and then you go at a diagonal back to the field entrance, that's putting 80% of your compaction happens up to 80% on the first pass. 
So you're taking a loaded grain cart across at a diagonal, that's going to create a lot of compaction. And instead, if you can follow the old combine tracks, you know, like if you fill up on the side that the combine has already driven on, follow those tracks to the end of the field, take that back to the headlands. And that way you would minimize the amount of uh, traffic that's out in the field. So the grain cart's the most important one. Okay. And then in terms of deep tillage, why is that not the, the good solution to compaction? Um, well, one, you got to know where your compaction is located. So in Minnesota and probably the Northern Corn Belt, you're going to see more wheel traffic. And I can always find wheel traffic when I'm in soil pits. It, it's kind of U-shaped and, you know, you, it's always there. Uh, sometimes there's a plow pan and then sometimes there's deep compaction, but where we live, we don't have that deeper compaction, uh, but down south they may. So depending where you live, subsoiling may not help you. And in soils with a higher pH and with shrink swell soils, you know, the ones that crack in the summertime, the ones that shrink when they're dry, um, those cracks are doing deep tillage. Down south, they don't have those soils. So it, it's, you know, it's going to be, um, depending on your soils, what, what's going to work for you. So up here, subsoiling doesn't work as well. One, because we have the shrink swell soils. Two, because a lot of it can be wheel traffic, which you got to make sure that your shank hits that wheel traffic to bust it up. Um, and three, it's a lot of horsepower. We're talking, you know, 30 to 50 horsepower per shank to pull it. And then you don't need to pull it at 20 inches, what it's, you know, set from the factory. If you have compaction, your tire traffic compaction usually stays in the top foot where you can see it, um, maybe a little bit deeper. But if you have a plow pan, that's something that's a little more consistent and horizontally across the soil, you know, down. And it's usually six to eight inches because people have been using chisel plow for a long time. In Minnesota, we've gone to disc ripping, which is deeper, which had ripped that out. But now we're starting to form plow pans at 10, 12 inches. Uh, so the more you rip it out, the deeper your compaction can go. So if you have a plow pan that you know is there, then a shank can help kind of rip it back up. But what it does is destroys the aggregates, the structures, those little columns in the soil that help hold up equipment. And then the equipment, that means if you drive back on it, you can actually sink down to that depth that you pulled it. So if you have a compacted zone, like pan at like six inches, only set that the subsoil are just seven inches. Don't go deeper, don't set, keep it at 20 when you're wasting fuel. And two, now you're set up for a compaction down to 20 inches. Before Jody talks about carbon markets, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Sourced by Sound Agriculture, for supporting the Strip-Till Farmer podcast series. Wake up your soil and unlock more per acre with Sourced by Sound Agriculture. Source is a biochemistry that activates microbes in the soil to provide more nitrogen and phosphorus to corn and soybean crops. It's simple to use with a low use rate, tank mix compatibility, and flexible application window. Use the Performance Optimizer tool to determine where Source will work best to increase yield or reduce nitrogen. Either way, you win! 
Visit sound.ag to learn more. That's sond.ag. Now let's get back to the conversation. So what's happening when the compaction moves down is that you're, the soil isn't able to hold you, so then it all the weight just goes down to whatever level you didn't rip off. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, think about stepping into the field um, right after you've done tillage. You know, you sink. It's nice and fluffy. So what tillage does is it breaks apart those aggregates, your columns in the soil, and it introduces air. And that's nice for warm-up, um, but what? how much weight can air hold up? Nothing, right? So it just falls back. It, gravity will pull, it, pull the soil back down. You don't even need to put weight on it. Gravity will do it. So the more you till, the more you need to till. And we're trying to get out of that cycle and show all the benefits of soil health in a well-structured soil. And it can help in so many different aspects. Mm-hmm. And then another technique of dealing with compaction would be to rely on the freeze-thaw cycle, but that's not adequate either. Can you explain why? Well, um, I think freeze-thaw cycles, the way that we said those always help break up compaction was a few um, generations ago. And that's when we had much lighter equipment, so it wasn't compacting so deep into the soil. You know, it's only compacting the top five, six inches, and that's what frost takes care of. And we also had more um, different crops in rotation. If you had alfalfa that had a taproot that broke it up, um, and also that you have a perennial in there for three, four years. And now we're to corn beans, we're, we're limited on our rotation, and we have heavier equipment put in compaction deeper. And freeze-thaw, you need multiple freeze-thaw cycles. And in Minnesota, we're good at freezing. Um, but not thawing multiple times, mainly just in the surface, you get that freeze thaw where compaction can go three plus feet into the soil and you get one freeze there, one thaw, and it takes dozens of those to break it up. So just because we push compaction down deeper, freeze thaw won't take care of it. But wetting and drying can if you have the expanding clay in your soil. That helps even more so than freeze thaw. How long does it take for a strip tiller to start to see some of the benefits of addressing compaction if they're um, minimizing PSI, um, switching to strip till from deep tillage, things like that? Oh, that's always a good question. With compaction, it depends if they have the, the soils that you know um, shrink and swell. That will naturally help out. With the residue, they'll be able to wick water into the soil. And the residue has a lighter bulk density than most soils. And so it will wick water in so the water's not ponding. Um, So I'm not sure if there's like a, you could say in four years, you're going to have this wonderful soil and never have compaction again. That's not going to happen. But uh, you'll start seeing smaller changes over the, you know, that will. And the first one is better water infiltration. When you have standing residue out there, you know, the first year of strip till, you'll see benefits. And then your soil will slowly change over and it it will start alleviating the compaction naturally. The biology will come in and, um, you know, those microbes are so fantastic. And, you know, nine billion microbes in a cup of soil, um, all their sticky 
substances and stuff will, uh, you know, start adhering that soil together and creating that structure. And, and it takes a while for them to get up and going and have a home for them to work their best. So I can't give you an exact number. I wish I could. And also with strip till, you're usually doing less passes across the field. So you have less wheel traffic out there. And that will be, you know, that will start showing the benefits too. Um, and this year in particular, what are some of the common questions that you're getting from strip tillers? Why can't I get in the carbon markets now? Because <laughs> they've already been doing good things. And they, you know, some of the companies won't uh, look back very far. So that's uh, one of the things that the Minnesota corn growers wanted us to go out and talk about more is uh, carbon markets and what is carbon. Uh, so I think I have a, a table talk also that we can talk about, you know, farmers have been farming carbon this whole time. Uh, they just, that's not what we call it. Um, residue is about 45, 50% carbon and your organic matter is about 55, 60% carbon. And everything they do out there changes those carbon pools. And strip till helps keep more carbon down. Plus, they're not emitting as much carbon because they're um, in the tractor less. So soil health affects so many aspects. So if you want to improve your carbon content in the soil, you improve your soil health. If you want to reduce erosion, you improve your soil health. If you want to reduce compaction and, and are set up for less compaction, improve your soil health. And so there's so many aspects that improving structure in your soil can help the farmer with. For sure. For carbon markets, are there specific qualities of a certain program that a farmer should look for that they can feel confident that it's a good program to join? Well, I get a lot of comments from farmers of why should uh, we help companies greenwash, um, you know, buy carbon, but still be able to pollute carbon. And there are different, many different companies out there. And quite a few of them are looking seriously at what they're doing in setting, what they're doing in their company versus buying carbon credits. So you can go find companies that have your values as well. And you know, and go find those markets. Um, another thing is, um, you know, that what if the price of carbon changes in the middle of your contract? Will it go up for you as well? Uh, so, you know, keep that in mind. Um, again, what happens if you can't put in cover crops or can't do the change in management? Uh, you know, what does that company do? Most of them will just say, okay, if you can put it in next year, you'll get paid next year. But can you do that if you're going to put in a cover crop, say after wheat and the next year you're going to beans and you can't get in a cover crop. So, you know, if that cover crop is dependent on the rotation. So be careful with that. The other thing is uh, some of them will pay the landlord and not you, not the renter. So check that out, make sure. And contract wise, you're not going to see a change in carbon in five years. You really won't. Um, that's what is difficult uh, for me. I would like to see them give credit for not emitting carbon because we can quantify that. So if you have two less passes with your tractor, we know almost exactly how much carbon that's not emitting. And 
being able to test your soil to see what kind of carbon you're holding down, that's a lot more difficult. And the speed at which you can hold it down um, definitely ranges across the U.S. As you go further north, you can hold down less carbon. It's just because of the weather. Mm -hmm. What's the ideal structure for these programs, in your opinion? So people who are already doing these practices are getting paid, but then we're also encouraging people who aren't to do them. Well, I like that they're paying the ones some companies are paying back um, because those farmers already know it works and you have a much higher, less risk. You know they're going to do this for the length of the contract because they already are. Uh, the new ones, if you can end your contract any time and just not get paid uh, from then on out, um, there's no real incentive to stay in it. And so, you know, if a farmer tries it for two years, that's really not doing too much for the soil at that time. And the other thing that I like to see is, or for farmers to check out and that may is, is the farmer getting credit, that carbon credit? And they're not. So if one of the companies is buying carbon for Microsoft, Microsoft is getting that credit for that carbon, not the farmer that they bought it from. And now let's say later the soybean growers or the corn growers, wheat growers need to, their government's looking at them saying, okay, what are you doing to improve carbon? And they say, well, we're selling a lot of our credits. Well, you don't get credit for that. The person who bought the credit gets it. So I've been seeing more uh, farmer owned ones starting up as brokers to broker their own carbon credits. Um, and I think that's a good idea or to make sure that they get credit for what they're doing as well. It's, it's just new right now. And so, you know, those things will be worked out. And I've been kind of having farmers hold off. Um, but I had one farmer say, I put everything in. And I said, you did? What, what, you know, what prompted that? And he says, I was going to start these strip tilling everything. And he said, I might as well get in now. And then five years when that contract's up, then, you know, he can re-enroll in some other aspects. So yeah, I do whatever you're comfortable with and just know the, the risks. And I mean, it's like marketing their corn and, and buying fertilizer and everything else. It's just one more thing they get to manage. But there's also a government programs that can, they can double up with and that they can actually get a lot more money from Equip um, than they can for the carbon credits. But put them together. And, you know, you can have, that really helps reduce the risk to try new management. Yeah, for sure. In Europe right now, the prices for carbon are way higher than they are here. Something like $150 for a credit versus like 25 here. So do you anticipate that the market here will grow to meet that? Um, you don't want me giving marketing advice. I'm the one who always buys my fuel oil <laughs> at the high price. And, you know, I, I am just, you know, I think I know what's going to happen. Um, I am uh, saying to strip till companies, get out there and make sure you have strip till equipment that can go in and, uh, you know, 20, 22s and 30 inch rows, because the more, more and more farmers are asking about strip till. Do you have any advice to farmers who are thinking about strip till, but not sure if it's something that they can or should implement? Well, we're in Minnesota. We actually can say we're the most furthest north um, state 
well, mostly, you know, <laughs> and strip till works. Um, you may need a secondary pass if you have a lot, a ton, literally tons of residue, like if you're corn on corn and uh, continuous corn. Um, but we've been showing that in the berm has the same temperature as disc ripping and in some years, the same as moldboard plowing. It warms up very nice and dries out very nice in that berm. And then underneath the residue, it uh, is cooler and wetter. And But the erosion protection, the trafficability aspect, the water infiltration, water storage, nothing can be stripped till on that. And I would say just, just try it. Uh, I think our biggest in, uh, barrier right now is the price of equipment. And wanting to try it on some acres and not all the acres. So if you have a dealer near you or somebody who will custom. So you see pockets of strip tillers blooming, you know, because they have each other to rely on and they can try the equipment from somebody, their neighbor, and then, you know, can see how it works before they commit to the equipment. But that is a number one barrier on all of the surveys we have is the price of equipment. And just being able to put down some of your, some or all of your nutrients with your strip tiller uh, saves you a pass. If you have very low or very high pH soils, you can band, if you band apply your nutrients are more available longer uh, versus broadcast incorporate, because like a high pH soil and very low pH soils can actually tie up phosphorus. Um, I wouldn't reduce your nitrogen rates, but uh, your phosphorus, you can if you're banding in those high or low pH soils. Okay. So your advice is to ban versus broadcast if possible. Yep. And one, the, the nutrients are secured. You know, they're not sitting on the surface. And if you had soil erosion, it's not taking as many nutrients with it. If they're in strip till, they're, they're usually not broadcast incorporating anymore. Uh, they may, uh, when they side dress, they may put down urea and then they should um, stabilize it so it doesn't all thinking that rain cloud's going to come to help push it down into the soil doesn't always happen. So uh, they need to stabilize it so it doesn't uh, volatilize back up into the atmosphere. Uh, and that's another thing with the carbon markets. I think uh, we can take more advantage of is doing better nitrogen management because nitrous oxide is like 278 times more potent than carbon carbon dioxide. And so if we can control how much we lose to volatilization, one, that really helps the farmer, especially with the price of fertilizer right now. And two, it helps with greenhouse gases. It's in the carbon markets. They'll do that too. And so I think that's one not to skip. Look at that because uh, doing more precision application of your fertilizer and a little more soil sampling, you probably could qualify to have that underneath the carbon markets. Okay. Um, and was there anything else you wanted to mention that I haven't asked you about? We've changed out our hybrids, our fertilizers, how we apply them and how much we apply. We've changed every aspect, our, our equipment. So I think it's time for farmers to look at tillage. Um, we have a very strong belief that a good farmer tills his soils black. Uh, and that has changed. And some farmers go, oh, I did, you're saying I did it wrong this whole time. No, we just didn't know. I mean, the biology of the soil, only 1% of those microbes can be grown in a laboratory. We're just learning the tip of the iceberg of what's happening out there. And so it's fairly new data. And 
it, they're not doing it wrong. But I think uh, anybody, not just farming, but in any company needs to keep looking at how to move forward and how to change things and how to be more effective and, and use less resources and make more money and, you know, all of that. Um, and I think going to strip till can do that for quite a few farmers. Thanks to Jody D. Young Hughes for joining me for today's conversation. She's speaking in our premier lecture series at the National Strip Tillage Conference in Iowa on July 28th. Go to striptillconference.com to register for two days of learning from dozens of industry experts like Jody and other cutting edge strip tillers. If you're looking for more podcasts about strip till, visit striptillfarmer.com podcasts or check out our episode library wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, many thanks to Source by Sound Agriculture for helping to make this Strip Till podcast series possible. From all of us here at Strip Till Farmer, I'm Michaela Pauchner. Thanks for listening.